Perhaps I was talking when I should have been listening. No matter what happens, you've got to hang on. Johnny, relax. Now you give him everything he wants, you understand? Now let's see what happens when we mix these two elements together. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you are now listening to the Relentless College Entrepreneur Podcast. Welcome back to the Relentless College Entrepreneur Podcast. Today, I have a guest that was a teacher of mine a couple semesters ago, and that was Professor Snow, uh, one of the most interesting professors that I've had, and he is teaching economics and very different topics of economics. So very thankful to have you on, Dr. Snow. So um, getting started, could you introduce yourself to the crowd just a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um... My name is Nathaniel Snow. I've been at Ball State. This is my third year. I taught at Indiana Wesleyan University for three years. I did my PhD at George Mason University. Uh, and in previous lives, I've worked at the International Trade Commission. I've worked in economics consulting, and I spent eight years as a teacher in, in inner city Durham, North Carolina, working with at-risk populations uh, K through 12. Sweet. So today's topic is going to be the economics of free college. Jumping right in, who will be affected by or paying the quote unquote free college? So, so if college were tuition were made absolutely zero marginal cost to the consumer, it doesn't mean that it doesn't cost anything. In economics, it's always important to look for the real resources that are being employed and to re recognize that any resource has an alternative use or an alternative application. So what are we talking about? We're talking about buildings. We're talking about um, professors. We're talking about people with specialization in a variety of fields. Uh, we're talking about um, land and, and time and all these resources that are dedicated to developing human capital and individuals, if that's what they're actually doing with their time. Uh, so who will be affected? It'll be not just the fact that taxpayers are going to have to find a way to increase how much they're paying in taxes, but it will also be the fact that uh, perhaps a, a, a chemist who would be involved in industry uh, to produce new chemicals or, or, or products that are helpful to all of society, perhaps by subsidizing public um, college level education, that would draw that chemist out of industry into education. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It depends. It's hard for us to tell. Uh, it depends. Uh, and it's, it becomes more difficult to tell when they're subsidized to do one thing or the other. We can also subsidize chemists to do chemistry and industry. Uh, but when subsidies enter the picture, typically there is there is some amount of wasted resources because we're paying more for something than the consumer is willing to pay themselves. Uh, so, so we're, we're re removing this is part of the of the problem of education and, and subsidies in general that often gets overlooked. And then when it comes to paying for it, when there's taxes that are 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 collected to pay for public goods like education. There's always opportunities that are foreclosed upon for, for exchanges of other goods and services, the things that are being taxed. So the, the fact that those exchanges no longer are consummated means that people are made worse off in ways that they don't even really know because uh, it's an unseen 
kind of phenomenon. It's things that they never enter into because they don't that, because they're priced out of it. So who pays for it? In that sense, when when resources are used in a way that is inefficient, uh, either because they're being taxed or because they're being subsidized, that means that uh, those resources could have been used to do something that we wanted more, perhaps, or it means that if they're taxed, surpluses from those exchanges do not obtain. And as a result, people have less money in their pockets to spend on other things, perhaps less money in their pockets to spend on whatever it is that you're selling. So, so uh, you know, we, we look at the explicit costs in terms of taxation, but it's, it's interesting to think deeper about the implicit costs that, that you'll never actually observe, but, but are unseen from, from uh, the tangible point of view. That's interesting. And I remember talking to you uh, and learning in class, like how big like opportunity cost was. So like them having free college versus not having free college, how the economics works out. We don't know because I mean, there's a lot of unforeseeable things that could possibly happen. We don't know with that type of market because we haven't had necessarily a full on free college, but I find it interesting. Like you said, it's almost, would you say kind of devaluing a degree after it becomes free and available to everyone? It makes it more difficult for potential employers to assess the value of the degree mm. if more people are getting the degree. Uh, so we would expect to see um, potential employers asking to see transcripts more often than they have in the past. And one of the things that they're going to look at on a transcript isn't just you know your overall GPA. If they're really interested in you, they're going to take a deeper look and look at what classes did you take. And if they have, if they're an alum of the school, perhaps they might even check and see which professors you had classes with. Mm -hmm. So the, one of the main values of getting a college degree is that it signals to potential employers that you're able to stick through something and finish it. If we subsidize education more, making it completely free for the student, then then the only opportunity cost that remains is whatever it is that they could have done with that time instead, you know, in terms of getting a job and making money right away, they're, they're giving up four years of, of income to go and, and go to school. Um, so, so the potential employer doesn't have a work experience record to look at. Instead, they have a course experience record to look at. Huh? Yeah. That, that's, that's interesting. I remember in your, uh, class you were like with our minors try to be as diverse as possible uh and then you were telling us that like try don't go for the easy classes take the hardest classes challenge yourself in college you'll stand out if the employer asks for the transcript transcript uh and i i took that uh to heart and i've been taking a lot more challenging classes but i've i've learned so much more than what i would have if I had more time on my hands from taking a easy art class and playing Xbox the rest of the time. So I think I learned and helped a lot. It helped me understand like opportunity costs that made it made sense to me. Well, don't but, fool yourself. Some of those art classes are hard. Um, and sometimes they make the art classes harder just because they think students are trying to get into it for an easy A and they resent that. Um, so what extra math classes did you take? Because that's the one thing that I always recommend to my students is no matter how many math classes you've taken, you probably ought to take one more. And I recommend that to the student who's had calculus two, take calculus three or differential equations. I recommend it to the student who's had statistics, take another statistics class or 
and, and you don't have to answer that question. You're supposed to be asking me the questions today. You know. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that I challenge students with all the time. And when you mentioned about diversification, yeah, we, we talk oftentimes in business schools about diversifying our portfolios. Why? So as to reduce risk, should uh, some sort of um, uh, sh shock happen to the economy in one sector, then you have assets stored up in some other sector as well. And frankly, I think the best way to do that is just to buy an index fund and, and buy and hold. But uh, I, always, I always tell my students, the main thing that you can diversify in terms of your investments is you. And the biggest investment you're investing in is you. So diversify yourself. So if you, uh, whatever your major currently is, try to take uh, courses or maybe get a second major or a minor in whatever field is as different at, at, from your primary major as you possibly can tolerate, right? So, so some things you just like, it's not gonna make sense for me to do that at all. But if there's something that's very, very different that you have some um, tangential interest in, go ahead and explore it. It'll be a good fallback. Similarly, students who are you know, close to graduating or somebody who already has finished their education, if they, if they have uh, time on their hands, I also always tell my students, you always need to be preparing for your next job. The average student who graduates from university will be in their first job three to five years before they transition into their next job. And part of what's happening there is just that the employer is verifying for the rest of the employers in the world that you're going to be a good worker. A lot of people are good in school, but bad at work. So that, that first job is crucial. So you need to be educating yourself while you're still in that first job. And you never stop learning. People who stop learning find themselves left behind when the world changes. And again, the same strategy applies there. If you've got a job in one sector, think about a sector that, uh, that is very, very different from the sector that you're currently in and start investing in that. What can that mean? That can mean just reading up on it. So if there's a topic that's interesting, you, you can just start reading up on it. Read a book every couple of weeks on that topic and then write about what you've read, right? This is absolutely crucial. If you start writing about the things that you're interested in that are different from your primary job, you start publishing it on a blog or doing a podcast or something like that, then that gets the attention of other employers that said from very different fields to say, okay, this person is actually gonna be interesting. They have a diverse point of view. They're gonna be able to add even more than just their skill set to, to the potential working environment. Yeah, and that was the whole type of ordeal. There was many factors. I don't make a dime off my podcast, but I don't have like advertisements yeah. or anything, but I do gain a lot of knowledge. I network, I further my education. I have read, uh, I actually just did a word document. I'm on my 49th book of this year. So like wow. I read like crazy, but, uh, I'm, and I'm very diversified. Like I started with a lot of business books and then I went out to philosophy. Then I started with finance, different, uh, uh, I did like story stuff, like just a bunch of other books that I diversify, like you said, but uh, I, th I find it very interesting to do that. But um, jumping back into the topic, right. uh, what does uh, free college mean for private colleges? Most private colleges accept federal money. Mm -hmm. There are a couple that don't. I, I know of Grove City College and I think Hillsdale college also they don't accept any federal funding so that means that it's more difficult for them to compete against 
uh, public funding, publicly funded institutions. Uh, they still find a way to, to, to make a go of it. Uh, there are reasons why they don't want to take federal money based on principle, but it, it does make it more competitive. Um, in other ways, he who pays the piper chooses the tune. So the question that we would want to ask in a democratic society is, do we trust the political uh, mechanism to help preserve uh, the, the necessary liberty of scholars to say hard things in the classroom and to write about hard things in, in their journals and their publicly published works. One of the major advantages of a tenure-based system is that it's supposed to provide some sort of comfort or security to the scholar who is investigating things that are that not everybody wants to hear. So that's that's something to think about. Uh, in terms of how it will affect the universities on the whole, I think I think that it will make it a little more difficult for private universities who don't want to accept federal money uh, to compete. Interesting. Yeah. And um I after hearing like all this stuff, I'm curious what do you think or your opinion you can take from like the term free college um yeah so so it's a misnomer um economists have a favorite little saying they say there ain't no such thing as a free lunch yeah and we say it so often that we've just made it an acronym and we say ton stoffel uh just and, and you can look that up milton Friedman is famous for having said that as well so there ain't no such thing as a free lunch to a student who hears free college you have to ask yourself, well, what does that include? Uh, does it include four years? What if I don't do well in those first four years? Does it mean I get a fifth year free also? Is there a limitation on the number of years that I can go to college for free? You know, a lot of people go to college for seven years. They're called doctors. That's a quote from Tommy Boy. But <laughs> there's, there's, you know, that if we give people incentives not to work, then they won't work. The, the challenge becomes, well, how do you monitor the performance of students and, and typically the market mechanism disciplines individuals with the opportunity costs of, of going to school themselves. You know, if, if they have to pay out of pocket, then they're going to maybe not try to stay forever. Right. But if, if they don't have to pay anything for it, then it persists uh, and they'll keep on going. So then you have to create a, a, an enforcement and monitoring mechanism about how long a student stays in school, whether they're taking important classes. Uh, you have to, there may be either cutbacks or increases. I don't know how which direction it would go in terms of the amenities available to students at colleges. So one of the major decisions that a student makes when trying to figure out which college to go to is they compare the amenities at each institution. Uh, and I think even on college tours, oftentimes you spend more time looking at the gym and the dorms than you do sitting in classrooms and assessing the quality of the instruction. So in a way, college has become, you know, like a resort for, you know, older adolescents that they go to for four years. And then, you know, they have to go get a job and they're like, what's this? I have to pay for stuff. <laughs> That's very so, interesting. You know, what do, what do people do for money? Uh, is, <laughs> so so it, it, it could be a rude shock. Um, and again, there's the costs that are on the other side of the equation. 
where you know people are having to pay for it through taxes and 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 finally there's the opportunity cost to the student of of having a job of of having life experiences of um choosing for themselves what's really of value and what's not now on the flip side the argument for publicly funded education or even free college is that in the current environment, the United States in particular, is at the cutting edge of technological advancement and we're a service-based economy. That means that in terms of manufacturing jobs, there are fewer of them than there were before. It doesn't mean that we're making less stuff. We're actually producing more. Manufacturing sector is larger than it's ever been in the United States. It's just that more and more of it's become automated. What that means is that the people who are working in manufacturing need more skills than they used to need in the past. So even those who are working in the manufacturing sector oftentimes require some higher education, whether that be an associate's degree or a vocational degree or a bachelor's degree or more. So in, in terms of the kinds of jobs that are in demand uh, in, in the United States today, the better paying ones all require a college degree. Now, there's a, a bit of a puzzle to that. Uh, one of my former professors, Brian Kaplan, who teaches at George Mason University, has a book called The Case Against Education, uh, in which he, he documents all of his understanding of, of how the education system works. And one of his strongest arguments is this. When a student graduates from high school, they have much greater earning capacity on average than a student who didn't finish high school. A high school dropout isn't going to have the same earning potential as a high school graduate. Then you go to college and the, the increase in lifetime income for completing one year of college is relatively small. The increase in lifetime income for completing a second year of college is a little bit more, but not very much. The increase in lifetime income for completing three and a half years of university is again a little bit bigger, but still not very much. It's that last semester. It's that last semester and finishing when we see a major increase in lifetime incomes of students. So if you finish three and a half years of school and you don't graduate, your lifetime income is going to be a lot closer to a high school graduates than a college graduates. Now this is a puzzle because is it only the classes that you took in your second semester senior year where you learn things that are actually valuable on the job? Of course not. You've, been learning valuable skills all the way along. It should be more of a linear path, but it's not. That means that the, the college degree is not so much a good, a good measure of actual capacity to, to produce, but rather it's a signal. It's a signal that says, hey, you know, I've, I've, had, I've been able to finish something. I'm not dumb. Um, and, and I made it through this difficult gauntlet, so to speak. Um, and so the signaling value is a little bit weird uh, as compared to the what we would call an instrumental value of actual skills learned on the job. That presents a bit of a puzzle. That's interesting. And I remember we you uh, it was assignment to read a couple books, uh, Factfulness, that was a good one. And then uh, I believe it was Pro-Choice. And it talked about in Pro-Choice the um, how society wouldn't advance if we stayed in the manufacturing sector we wouldn't have the cutting edge technology that we have today if you know we didn't 
adapt and become this one heck of a society. I mean, like technology is crazy now. That's a whole nother, another conversation though. Uh, but pro-choice, I remember reading that book and it talked a lot about it's, the advancements. It's, it's The Choice by Russ Oh, Roberts. The Choice, not Pro-Choice. It's yeah. a fascinating <laughs> book. Actually, I, I happened to sign that recently because it feels kind of dated these days. But the lesson is really true still that uh, that making ourselves open to trade with other countries uh, actually provides us better opportunities to do what it is that we do well. Um, and that I, in my mind, as Americans, we don't have anything to be afraid of. We can compete with anyone else in the world and we have better training than anywhere else in the world. Uh, our, our university system is, is better than most other places in the world. Our graduate programs in particular are better than most places in the world. Uh, so, so the opportunity to learn is there. The question is whether or not uh, the students should, should take on, on themselves the risk involved in, in getting that education. Now, one point that I, I hadn't gotten to earlier is this, that when you subsidize education, you actually increase the cost of it. So, so the, the price of education goes up. Currently, the way that's being financed is through student loans. By making student loans easier to access, more and more students are taking out loans. Mm. And, and the question is whether or not students are able to make a good decision about whether to take out a loan and how much in loans to take out. Whether students are, have the wisdom or, or personal fortitude, whether they're getting good counsel from others about whether to take out loans or not. That's a challenge because as more and more students take out loans, the price of college will continue to go up, which means the students will have to take out more loans. It's a, it's a vicious kind of cycle that, 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 that ends up in. Yeah. That's, that's interesting, which leads me to the point, like what would be the short-term effects for the economy overall, or just within the sector of universities with free college? What do you think would, I mean, obviously I guess it wouldn't be foreseeable now, but what do you think would happen short-term? Gosh, there's so many possible outcomes. Yeah. There's so many possible ways that things could, could go. Um, I think that at the margin, a lot of students or a lot of young people and actually people in, at every stage of life would, would seek opportunities to go back to school. Mm. The trick then is who gets to go. That doesn't, you know, if, if it's free, that doesn't mean everybody gets it. Uh, there's still limited access. Uh, there's still a limited number of professors. Uh, so so then you're gonna have um, you're gonna have the problem of how to allocate who gets to go, and I don't know what sort of allocation mechanism would be used. Whether all the students would apply, all the potential students would apply, and then some government board would choose who gets to go, and that can have positive outcomes. It could mean that you know the, only the very highest scoring students go to school, and then uh, that would encourage students to prepare harder before trying to apply to get into school. This is actually how uh, it goes in China, where there are a limited number of opportunities to go to the university and all of the students compete with one another uh, to prepare for the exams. And then based purely upon the exam scores, students are allocated to different universities based upon that performance. 
And if you don't happen to get into college, you're just in, in an, you know, you're just out of luck. You're going to end up in a mm. lower level occupation for the rest of your life because you're not going to have that opportunity to go back to school. So the, the question is whether or not the, the person who can make that decision based upon a test score, for example, knows more about the potential opportunities or the potential life income of that individual who's trying to get into school than that individual knows about themselves, right? And, and also the, the tolerance of risk that that individual might have, whether or not they'd be willing to take on the, uh, the risk of, of taking out some loans in order to go to college. It messes up the entire allocation of who gets to go to school is my point. Mm -hmm. And instead of it being a decision that is made by individuals, it becomes an individual that's made by some sort of, you know, allocating authority, uh, an education czar of sorts. And, and some people may like that. It, it may encourage a meritorious, a meritocratous structure. Some people might, might discourage that. Interesting. And what does it mean for, professors like yourself do you think there would be a decrease in wages or salaries uh or do you think it'll stay about this i mean i guess again there are so many outcomes and i guess it really depends on the policy that gets implemented with free college but what do right. you think would it take from it yeah that that's that's one of the variables i was trying to think through it and i don't have an answer um again it depends on too many too many things yeah um one thing that 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 is overlooked a little bit, um, but, but maybe less now than before. After COVID, a lot more people have become comfortable with Zoom. Uh, and over the last generation, Can Academy has come through and produced you know, free education for, for millions. Um, you know, my courses, I use Marginal Revolution University, which anybody can access for free, mru.org which is attached to the textbook that I use, but the videos are available to anybody who wants to watch them for free. So in terms of getting educated, right, it, you know, as, as Goodwill Hunting said, you know, you could have gotten all that for $2 in late fees at the local <laughs> library. Yep. I do like them apples. And, and, and so getting an education is, is more readily accessible to people than ever before. Uh, and they ought to take as many of those opportunities as they can. I'll often tell my students, you know, before you watch a movie on Netflix, you know, go and watch a video on economics first or go watch a video on math first or go watch a video on programming or on investing or on whatever, you know, side gig you might be interested in. Commit resources to that. Give your time to that. And the world is your oyster. There's so many opportunities. It just matters, you know whether you're willing to put the work forward for it. If college became free, I don't know how it would affect things. It could mean that uh, that recorded courses become much more common. So, you know, during COVID, I recorded all of my lectures and now I'm teaching an online section in addition to two in-person sections. And that online section, you know, I can just press play and go and then assess the student work throughout the semester uh, and maybe they're getting a similar level of education. I, I think that it's it's comparable, but not the same. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I think that uh, different learning styles will struggle with that. But that does, again, mean that it becomes more available. How would that affect my pay? Uh, I don't know that it should affect my pay very much. It's something that I've produced that's out there, that's in the world. Actually, I posted all of my lecture videos on YouTube. And if you look me up, you can watch my entire courses 
Um, don't tell my current students that, but <laughs> that's not coming to class. <laughs> I try to put Easter eggs in my in-person lectures in, to help people with exams and stuff. But uh, yeah, the, there's all those variables to think about. And, and from this point of view, I haven't done enough work on that to, to have a good guess about how it would go. Yeah. And do you think, again, I know it's going to kind of be the same type of idea behind it. It's a, a lot of it's unforeseeable. A lot of factors go into it, but do you think like long-term, what do you believe would come out of this rather than what we were just talking about short-term? I, I, one thing to do would be to look at uh, countries where there is free education, free college provided in, in many European countries have systems like this. I, I don't know enough about those systems to know uh, how they allocate who gets to go to college. I, I think I think that in the German system, students choose while they're still in high school what their upper level education is going to be. Even a good portion of their high school training is directed towards uh, vocation in the long run. So you might be a high school sophomore and you have to choose before your junior year whether you're going to go into being a car mechanic or whether you're going to go on to get a college degree. And then that'll determine the rest of your courses while, while you're still in high school. And then when you get into college, you kind of already have to have chosen your major and you don't get to take a lot of electives in other fields. So that becomes training much more directed at, at vocation and, and lifetime occupation and much less emphasis on liberal arts. Well, is, is a liberal arts training important? Yes, a liberal arts training is important. First of all, it helps you to self-diversify. Secondly, it makes you aware of, of what's going on in the world around you and helps you to be a better citizen. And thirdly, it's personally edifying to, to work through difficult ideas and to think them through and to engage in discussions with, other, with your peers and with those who have more experience talking about those interesting ideas. Uh, I would expect that if college were publicly funded, liberal arts degrees would be discouraged mm. and, and might, it might um, become less common or you might have to have some special uh, situation that permits you to get into that sort of thing. Yeah, and I, I really enjoy this type of conversation because like I was thinking about it and I remember like just from so much of the knowledge that you taught me is like there's so many factors that doesn't meet the eye that people will oversee or not even think of like what does this mean for people that work at McDonald's now or what does it mean for uh like we have to have like you know fast food people working at Walmart because how would the people that shop there or go there else get it so it's like it's i guess it's like there's so many factors and it's definitely an interesting topic but um do you think there's any questions or anything interesting that should have gotten brought up that hasn't been brought up the wage gap between those who have a, a college education and those that don't is very very dramatic it, it's it, it's kind of it's kind of astounding how, how different wages are there are demographic shifts happening in the United States and around the world. There are about 1 million fewer young people in America today than there were a generation ago. Hmm. Uh, and, and so there are also fewer college students than there were a generation ago. Uh, the kinds of fields that require a college education um, 
are, are often those that are more attractive to women than to men. And so there's a major demographic swing in terms of the who, who goes to college and, and even more so in terms of who graduates from college. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the, the numbers of, of women and men who, who start college are closer, but those who graduate women are, are far greater. This also then also affects the ages at which people choose to marry if they want to and have children. And again, people are having fewer and fewer children. Uh, that's not a good thing or a bad thing from the economist's point of view. It does mean that some of the structures that exist are going to have to adjust and change. Um, and the other is the question of, okay, what about a person who, who just isn't going to do well at college? What, what's available for them? Um, in the long run, in the long run, I would expect that low-skilled workers will see their incomes increase along with the incomes of those who have more education. Uh, and this may be a little bit uh, of a stretch. Um, I don't have empirical facts for this. But we do know that uh, a barber in the United States earns about 10 times as much as a barber does in El Salvador. So living among people who are well-educated and who have very high incomes means that their opportunity cost for doing things for themselves is higher. So they're more likely to hire somebody and pay them more to perform those services for them. Hmm. So we see the wages of barbers go up, even though you don't need a very high advanced degree to be a barber when the barber is cutting the hair of people who are doctors and lawyers. And that kind of trend should continue across many disciplines. What, what we're finding at this moment is that on the one hand, there are not as many jobs available for people with fewer skills. And there are, uh, there have been, maybe not anymore. Maybe this, maybe this um, pandemic has, has brought a shift. There are more people who are willing to work at low wages. So it's important for, for people thinking about how this affects income is to recognize that buyers compete against buyers and sellers compete against sellers. And in the labor market, you're a seller and you're not competing against the firm that you want to hire you to get a higher wage. You're competing against all the other people that are willing to work at that same job for less than you. So you've either got to bring something special to that job, right? Or, or the, the worst case scenario is that we somehow try to get rid of all those other people that we're competing yeah. against. Um, for those who, who have more training, it presents an opportunity to be an entrepreneur who creates more opportunities, who creates more jobs for people who are not as highly skilled. So as you know, your viewers and listeners pay attention to this, I would encourage them. There's a lot of underpriced assets running around out there. And, and if you can buy an underpriced asset, then you can make money off of it. And those underpriced assets are people who on the surface, on the surface are low skilled, but who actually have a lot to offer. And so if you can find ways to provide employment for people who without a degree, without a lot of training, you'll be doing great things both for yourself and for them and for everyone else who's involved as well. Interesting. And uh, before we head out, don't want to take too much more of your time. Do you have any book or podcast recommendations besides Planet Money? Because you put me on that, uh, what was it, sophomore or junior year? And I listen to it every week. I love that podcast. But besides that podcast, what book or podcast recommendations do you have? 
Planet Money does a great job. I listen to Econ Talk religiously. Uh, this is a podcast, again, by Russ Roberts, who also wrote that book, The Choice. He has interesting interviews every week on Mondays. Uh, and, and those are, some of them are at a higher economic level. Some of them are, are very accessible. Uh, I would recommend, in terms of studying education, Brian Kaplan's book, The Case Against Education. Uh, I would also recommend that uh, students and, and, and listeners can go back through all of the uh, articles published in, in the Star Press by Michael Hicks, who's another professor here at Ball State University, who's written extensively about the higher education system in Indiana and, and how we need more higher education in Indiana rather than less as, as the work that's available becomes more high-skilled. Interesting. Well, I appreciate your time. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. And uh, is there anything you'd like to say to the audience before we head out? Yeah, I'll add one last thing. First of all, thanks for having me on, Hunter. This has been terrific. And, and finally, in, in choosing schools where you might want to go to college, don't just look past Ball State University, particularly if you're interested in economics. The higher level state universities, the ones that are better ranked, uh, have graduate programs in economics. So professors' attention is divided between undergraduates and graduate students. And oftentimes they prefer to work with graduate students. At Ball mm. State University, we do not have a graduate program in economics, but we have world-class professors who are ready and excited about working with undergraduates. I've so far since being here, this is my beginning of my third year, I've already advised three student research projects uh, one of which won second prize at a conference last year. So there are huge opportunities for you to learn, to engage directly with professors in the economics program at Ball State University. Come out and visit us. We'll talk to you into it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And we are the Harvard of Muncie. That's that's the, definitely the saying. But uh, yeah, I think Ball State University is an amazing university. So definitely check it out if you're looking into the university. But uh, with that being said, we'll be queuing the outro. This has been the Relentless College Entrepreneur Podcast. Catch you guys next time.